Welcome to The Burn, Beyond Firestop. I'm your host, John Zalepka. Our show is focused on life safety and code compliance in the built environment, which puts me on a mission to find the most interesting people in this space and get their unique perspectives. Our hope is that our listening audience walks away with a better understanding of how our guests and their businesses also contribute to the promotion of life safety of whatever is being built. Our show, as always, is brought to you by Specify Technologies, also known as STI Firestop. And since 1990, STI has been a leading global provider of innovative fire protective solutions that help stop the spread of fire, smoke, and hot gases, or what's commonly referred to as Firestop, or passive fire protection. And our guest today knows a thing or two about the passive fire protection industry after spending most of his career with underwriters, or what's now UL Solutions, before retiring into consulting. Uh, Rich Walkie is currently the technical director at Creative Technology Incorporated, CTI, where he's been leveraging his 43 years of experience at UL by providing fire protection-related consulting services. But we'll let Rich tell us all about that in a bit. But first, welcome to the show, Rich. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on. I was uh, reviewing the uh, list of past guests last night, and uh, you've really had the who's who in the fire stopping industry on your show, so I'm honored to be part of that list now. Uh, we are now, now the list is uh, almost complete, Rich. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate that. Um, hey, I always like to start on a personal note rather than jumping into the whole business of things. And um, I want to take you back to your college days at Valparaiso University, Valpo. Uh, after doing a little digging on LinkedIn, like I always do, I see that you list two fraternities that you were involved in. Tau uh, Beta Pi, an honorary engineering fraternity. That made sense to me. But then I also saw Delta Theta Phi, which I had to look up, and it, it seems like it's a national law fraternity. So I guess my first question is, were you considering a career in law before getting into engineering? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, from the, the perspective of the undergrad fraternity, it was really just a social fraternity like any other fraternity. On the graduate side, though, it was focused on the, the law end of it. But because of the fact of the graduate side, there were it was focused on law. There were a number of the undergrad folks in the fraternity that were studying pre-law, but uh, but there were also a fair number of engineers and fair number of accountants in our fraternity also. Okay, understood. So did you kind of always know that then you wanted to go into engineering? I did. Uh, I was one of those few people in high school who knew what I wanted to do when I grew up. And uh, I, I think that really started when I was in junior high. And uh, my father bought my brothers and I a mini bike when I was, I think it was the seventh grade. And uh, we very quickly grew tired of putting around the neighborhood at 25 miles an hour. So we wanted more speed, you know, we had the need for speed. So we started modifying this mini bike, doing calculations on sprocket ratios and and that sort of thing. And more compression on the motor and all sorts of things. We got this mini bike up to about 50 miles an hour. And I, I kind of liked that concept of trying to build a better mousetrap. So all along, I, I thought I wanted to go into mechanical engineering. And uh, I went to Valpo thinking that's what I was going to do. And uh, a number of the fraternity brothers were civil engineers. And for whatever reason, they convinced me that I should change over to civil engineering. So I did. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that happened, but it did. And uh, I haven't looked back, haven't regretted it. So, I mean, it looks like you went to work at UL right after graduation. Um, did you kind of know that you always wanted to go to UL or how did that um, transpire? How did that come to be? Well, no, I, I really did not have that in mind. I, I did have a friend of mine who worked at UL, but uh, 
they were just one of the companies I interviewed with when I was uh, getting out of college. And uh, it, it was something very unique. You know, it was, they were talking to me about I'd be doing fire testing, going out to the lab and, you know, building fires and monitoring the growth of the fire and that sort of thing. I thought, that sounds like a cool job, a professional pyro. And uh, <laughs> I'd also blended a bit of, you know, lab work, office work and travel. And uh, so I, I liked the concept. And at the time, I didn't really think of it from the perspective of this is life safety. This is fire prevention, fire protection. This is, it was a job, basically, a job that sounded cool. So I took that job, started uh, initially in the uh, reaction to fire area, uh, Steiner tunnel testing, did a number of Steiner tunnel tests for about six year time frame. And uh, then I had the opportunity to move over to the uh, fire resistance group. And uh, it was a, a much more challenging area at UL. So uh, I kind of found my home there. And Yeah, uh, I mean, I would say so. It, uh, it got you at 43 years and six months LinkedIn does when you add it all up uh, at UL there. Yes. But So take me back to that, that original, uh, I guess, uh, job that you had. You were a project engineer, the Steiner Tunnel. You were engaged in, in testing what, building materials for flammability and things like that? Right, exactly. Typical interior finish materials, uh, insulation materials, uh, uh, lumber, plywood, wall coverings, those sort of things. Uh, and, uh, you know, Steiner Tunnel was a test that UL originated many, many years ago. And it's kind of the benchmark for reaction to fire performance. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting work, but after a while, it became a bit monotonous. You know, you do the same tests day in, day out. And uh, so, you know, th that's when I had the opportunity to go to the fire resistance group. I said, this is a good opportunity to, to broaden my understanding, broaden my knowledge and get involved in something a little different and uh, very yeah, much enjoy so that. Yeah, before you made that jump, I mean, one of the significant fires, the MGM Grand, we always teach about it in our trainings in 1980, that really caught the national attention for reforming fire safety guidelines and codes. Is that something that impacted your work or kind of made you jump into that uh the next part of your career not directly no it really didn't uh we, we were involved at ul in terms of the investigation of the mgm fire and there were some some issues with uh how the ceiling in the casino area had been uh constructed and resulted in rapid flame propagation through that casino area but but at the time no that really didn't enter into my decision to, to get involved in the fire resistance end of things from your perspective, was that one of the fires that kind of impacted the code or kind of defined what fire stopping was going to become? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was a series of uh, significant fires back in that era, starting with the MGM Grand, the Hilton uh, uh, Hotel fire in Las Vegas, uh, the first interstate bank fire, one Meridian Plaza in, in Minneapolis, know, Minneapolis, Philadelphia, rather. That all of those fires really had a huge impact on uh, on fire protection and uh, the ultimately the development of some of the test methods that we now take for granted. For example, the test method for perimeter fire containment was a direct fallout of, of those fires. So we we always say we learn from our experiences. We learn from from those events. We learn what went wrong and how do we prevent that from happening in the future. Yeah. Well, I'm just and looking at some of the dates here, and it looks like for 22 years you led your team in the development of the fire testing standards, and you know that we're always teaching people about E814 for penetrations. I guess that was in the 80s, right? Uh, uh, the mm -hmm. ASTM standard for construction joints. What is it? Uh, E1966, right? That was in, I believe in Correct. the 90s, and then as you mentioned the 
uh, the perimeter fire containment. So you've been there through it all. So you're literally the front lines of all of uh, this growing industry. So what, what can you tell us about how w- was your involvement in those, some of those standards and did you get involved in those as well? Yeah. Yes, I absolutely got involved in the development of those standards. You know, I, I went into the fire resistance group in 1987 and uh, there was this little niche area in the fire resistance group at UL that got involved in fire stopping. And uh, it was a new market at that point in time. When I came in, UL had 250 published systems. There was a standard already published, both ASDM U814 and UL1479, they were in place, but they were pretty primitive. And uh, I sort of took an interest in this little niche area of fire stopping and, you know, talking with the various manufacturers at the time, it was pretty apparent that uh, the testing existed, but the codes were very primitive on fire stopping. The standards needed some additional work. And, you know, there were issues with the installation quality in the field. So all that kind of piqued my interest and said, you know, let's see if I can get more involved in this fire stopping business and see if we can work with the industry at UL and, and move the industry forward and, and uh, you know, make sure that these systems are properly installed in the field and properly tested at the laboratory. So uh, we got very, I got very much involved in doing a lot of evolutionary changes to uh, UL1479. You know, again, at the time the standard existed, but it was a little primitive. Uh, one of the things I got involved with there was the development of the air leakage test that we now take for granted with fire stopping. It didn't exist at the time. So, you know, the industry came to UL and said, you know, we have this code requirement in FPA 101 life safety code that suggests we need the fire stops need to prevent passage of smoke. How do we measure that? How do we convince a code official that we're complying with that requirement? So we uh did a little bit of beard stroking and head scratching and, you know, found that there was a German test method that uh, evaluated air leakage. And uh, we sort of adapted that, made it work for the fire stopping and made some changes through the uh, UL standards development process to incorporate that into the standard and uh, ultimately work with the industry many years later, actually, to get that into the building code. So uh, there were also a lot of other you know, testing procedure changes that we made. And the, the beauty about UL in those days was, you know, if we had a question on, are we running this test properly? Could we modify the test procedure to get more valid results? Things like that. It was simple. We put together a test assembly. We took it down to the lab. We burned it and uh, <laughs> determined, <laughs> determined uh, whether there were changes needed in the standard or not. And if so, we proposed them and moved it forward. So it was real simple in those days. And, and that was what I really liked about working for UL. I worked for a, a supervisor, section manager, Bob Rehenick, that was uh, very receptive to those sort of things and basically let me do what I thought was appropriate and necessary for the industry. And, uh, That's awesome. That's great. Uh, what were some other highlights? I mean, or, or some things that you can think back on that you're proud of where you maybe shifted the industry to something that they weren't considering before that? Is there something? I mean, these are great stories. I mean, keep them coming. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I won't say, you know, I, I shifted the industry, but I helped the industry develop a lot of the standards. Uh, the standard for joint systems, UL 2079, ASM E814, I'm sorry. 1966, rather, those didn't exist when I got involved, and uh, we recognized the need. In fact, UL first began running tests on joint systems back in 1986. We didn't have a standard back then, but we 
again, did some beard stroking, head scratching, came up with a test methodology, even though it wasn't a published standard, and began certifying systems based on that methodology. So we took that and we modified, expanded it, and developed ultimately, you know, UL uh, 2079. We worked with ASTM, the counterpart standard to publish ASME 1966 a few years later. Kind of a controversial period of time. There were lots of different ideas on how that test should be conducted and the parameters that should be looked at, but we worked through those differences and ultimately got the standard published. Likewise, we talked about perimeter fire containment a few minutes ago, some of those historic fires. We got involved in that testing and uh, you know, ultimately that test methodology that we use now, ASDME 2307, was a fallout of a, of a test method that uh, Southwest Research, Jess Beidle, developed in conjunction with ICBO Evaluation Services to scale down the size of the test apparatus necessary for evaluating vertical flame propagation up the exterior of a building. Originally, that method it was a huge sample, and I don't recall the, the exact size, but it was a huge, very expensive test. So the, that industry wanted to scale down that test so it was more cost effective, but yet still develop the data that was necessary. So they came up with what was referred to as their intermediate scale multi-story apparatus. And once they started doing that, we at UL and an ASTM group started looking at that and said, wait a minute, that would be the perfect methodology for evaluating perimeter fire containment. Let's just change the focus of what we're looking at. So we're looking at the exterior fire propagation on the exterior of that wall. Let's look at the performance of the, uh, the uh, methods of protecting that void between the edge of the floor slab and that curtain wall. So uh, we use that to develop the test methodology, which UL put in place in 19... 1995, I believe it was, and uh, ultimately, you know, worked with ASTM to develop the uh, test standard, which now exists, ASTM E2307. So, uh, anyway, that I guess those were two highlights of my career. The other thing I got involved with, uh, perhaps somewhat related to your industry, was the development of the standards for grease duct wrap systems and, and grease fire-resistant grease ducts in general. You well, you know, it started, you know. Well, I guess it all started with the fact that the three legacy evaluation services all had acceptance criteria for those grease duct systems, but they were all different. So we didn't think that was appropriate and necessary. We thought we should get to the point where we had one published standard that was accepted nationwide. So uh, we put together UL 2221, again, after a lot of controversy, ASTM put together ASME 2336 covering the wrap systems, whereas the UL standard covered both fire resistant grease duct that incorporated integral protection within the duct. The wrap system evaluated by the, the ASTM standard just covered the wraps. So we had a little bit of divergence there and then ultimately, we, ASTM, everyone wanted to get that into the International Mechanical Code, so we it was submitted for the 2006 version of the International Mechanical Code, and there was a lot of controversy between some of the folks supporting the ASTM method versus UL supporting the UL method, and uh, so one of my future colleagues, when I ultimately moved to regulatory services, John Tacker, got everyone involved, locked them into a hotel room, I believe it was in Cincinnati, and said, gentlemen, we are not leaving this room until we come up with a compromise that we can present to the code committee tomorrow morning. 
And uh, and they did. They came up with a compromise that basically said RAP systems would be evaluated to ASME 2336. The uh, integral fire protection within the grease duct itself would be evaluated to UL 2221 that was ultimately approved in the International Mechanical Code and that really set that industry moving forward in the unified direction. So another thing I was, I was proud of. Yeah, awesome. Wow. So you're in the walls, you're in the floors, you're in the joints, you're in the curtain wall, you're in, throughout the building. That's fantastic. Exactly. Um, so I, I guess after you, you led your group there, you, it says you became the senior regulatory engineer. So what type of work were you doing there? What type of experience from all of that testing did you bring into that role? Okay. Yeah, the, the regulatory services group at UL, which has actually been known by a number of different names over the last uh, 20 years, but I call it regulatory services group, is a group at UL that interfaces with the code enforcement community. And uh, I, I guess I'll say in the early 2000s, you all had a change of management and a change of structure of the business. And uh, ultimately, what that change of structure did is it took away what I always considered the fun parts of my job. You know, mm -hmm. when I was leading the Firestop group at UL, you know, I was involved in code development. I was involved in standards development. I was working directly with the two industry trade associations, the International Firestop Council and the Firestop Contractors International Association. And uh, so I was doing a lot of those external activities, fun activities, challenging activities, and that all got taken away with this change. So I started saying, well, maybe it's time to move on. So uh, I had been involved in code development from the beginning when I was in the fire stopping group. I worked with Vicki Lovell quite closely. She was the, uh, you know, 3M, first the 3M code consultant, then the IFC code consultant. And uh, she brought UL into the fray, brought me into the fray. And so I, I began a attending building code hearings and uh, something that a typical UL engineer in fire protection department would never do, but I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was you know, interesting activity. So an, ac an opportunity came up in the regulatory services department in 2005. So I uh, applied for that position and was accepted, moved over to that group and got involved with, uh, with code development and uh, got involved in educating code officials. And you know, one of the things we all recognize from, from I'll say from my day one, 1987, is that uh, you know, fire stopping was not being installed properly. And uh, you know, the two trade associations, IFC and, and FCIA, were working very diligently on trying to improve that situation. The manufacturers were working very diligently. And uh, in turn, then, when I got in regulatory services, that gave me a very direct opportunity to help that process along. So I did a lot of training classes for code officials at the various ICC chapter meetings. Uh, and uh, I'll, I guess I'll say, you know, typically UL would get a request in from a local ICC chapter. We'd like to have somebody from UL do training on such such a topic. The two topics that were most frequently requested was fire resistance, you know, ASME 119 or UL 263, and second, fire stopping. In fire stopping, I'll use the broader sense of the term to mean protection of both penetrations and joints and voids and perimeter fire containment. So we had a lot of requests for that, and I did a lot of training. And you know, it was pretty obvious that the code officials needed some help, needed some assistance. And you know, and that's not a knock on code officials by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, I always said that uh, you know, we, those of us in the fire stopping industry, those of us at UL, you know, we knew one little section of the IPC, Chapter Seven, 
-hmm. And uh, code officials, they were expected to be experts on Everything. their entire book. Right. And oh, not to mention, they have the International <laughs> Residential Code, the Plumbing Code, the Mechanical Code, the Electrical Code. So there's a lot uh, expected out of a code official. So it's normal or it's expected they're not going to be experts in any given topic. So, so I, I, I try to help them along. I answered a lot of technical questions. I always thought that was an important part of my job is to educate them as best I can, answer their questions when questions came up, make sure they had the proper tools to make the right decisions. I thought that would go a long way towards making sure the inspections were done properly and ultimately the systems were installed appropriately. Well, they couldn't have found a better liaison between UL and the code enforcement uh, community there. So, uh, and you did that for a bunch of years, and then you I, finally retired, right, in November of yeah. 2019, only to go right back to work, opening up shop as Creative <laughs> Technology Inc. Um, my question here is: Did you ever look up the definition of the word retirement, Rich? No. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of my friends have, have said you get an F in retirement. <laughs> you do. All kidding aside. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about what you're up to these days and, and how the consulting is going. Okay. First of all, it's going very well. And uh, I'll say that uh, when I was in the regulatory services group at UL, I very much enjoyed my job. Very much enjoyed it. I just it got to the point I was tired of doing it 50 to 60 hours a week, you know, every week, week after week, being away from home roughly 50% of the time traveling to these conferences and that sort of thing. So I said, I want to do something different. I want to, I want to continue being involved but I just don't want to do it for 60 hours a week. So I thought I'd retire and work about 20 hours a week. I already had a, a, a business incorporated, Creative Technology Incorporated, kind of my, my hobby on the side is racing cars. So I had created this business to uh, cover in my involvement in sports car racing. So I just recommissioned that business into a fire protection consulting business. And I retired, actually, the intent was to retire the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in 2019. I actually didn't quite make that. I didn't walk out the door of UL until about 3 a.m. on Thanksgiving morning. Uh -huh. But uh, the the following Wednesday, I uh, met with Bill McHugh, who's the executive director of the uh, Firestop Contractors International Association and the National Fireproofing Contractors Association, about the idea of going to work as a consultant for them. And uh, Bill and I had shared a lot of activities in the past. I had been an integral part of the, his association over the years. We shared the passion for the industry. We shared the passion for making things better. And uh, so I thought it was a, a natural fit. So we worked out an agreement where I went to work for him consulting, uh, not on an exclusive, exclusive basis, but uh, uh, I guess I'll say that uh, working for him and his associations is kind of my primary work these days. I also represent some manufacturers in terms of getting their products and assemblies listed through UL. I uh, typically avoid working with the Firestop industry for fear of a conflict with what I'm doing for, sure. for Bill, but I'm involved with ASM E-109 type of work for some other manufacturers. Been doing a lot of engineering judgments, primarily relating to ASM E-119. Your industry does such a fantastic job with engineering judgments that there's no place for somebody like me in your industry. But in terms of uh, fire resistance, yes, I've been doing a lot of engineering judgment. So, so I've been keeping busy. I, I guess I'll say my goal of working 20 hours a week is sort of uh, <laughs> gone by the wayside and I'm back 
up more towards that 40 to 50 hour a week but oh, uh, but it's fun i'm enjoying it so if you enjoy it it's not work if, right yeah you're right absolutely right i mean i think they said somebody said if you find what you enjoy doing you'll never have to work a day in your life so exactly. it sounds like you have really exactly. enjoyed what, what you've done like you said you've got to be a career pyromaniac so that's <laughs> awesome but hey how do people get in touch with you if um they wanted to maybe hire you or had some questions about your your expertise well, I, I guess I, I be honest, I've been so busy consulting that I have not yet set up a website. So I don't okay. have a website, but uh, they can reach me by email, rich, R-I-C-H, walkie, W-A-L-K-E, 61 at gmail.com, or by phone, 847-274-0283. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes for you, Rich, and, and okay. you're on LinkedIn as well, so maybe I am. connect Absolutely. with Rich out LinkedIn. there. I, uh, I've actually sure. have had a number of contacts through LinkedIn, so that, that's actually worked pretty well. It's a great platform for business for it sure. Is. But hey, do you have any upcoming trade shows or exhibits or where people can maybe meet you? You have a 2023 travel schedule yet? I, I do. I do. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'll say, as I've mentioned before, I'm still very big on training and, uh, you know, trying to get the tools to the people that need those tools. So, uh, you know, part of what I'm doing is is uh, training. And uh, I've got, uh, I guess I'll say three upcoming sessions that I'll be involved with in early 2023. First one is the Annual Institute for Building Officials uh, taking place in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, of all places to go in <laughs> January. But uh, that conference extends from January 18th through February 2nd. So it's a, a long-term conference with uh, daily sessions, typically about four or five individual classes on a daily basis through that period of time. I'm teaching a class on protecting penetrations on Monday, January 23rd. I'm teaching a class on protecting joints and voids on the following day on, on January 24th. And then on Wednesday, the 25th, I'm teaching a class on duct and air transfer opening. So each of those will be a full day class on each of those subjects. It's a building officials institute by name, but it's certainly open to anyone who has an interest in life safety and, and uh, compliance with building codes. So there's a lot of individual sections. You can go on their website. They've got all those sessions laid out and uh, feel free to register whether you're a code official or not. And I've always said that uh, the information that a code official needs is the same basic information that a contractor needs, that an architect or an engineer or specifier needs. So, so it doesn't matter what your discipline is or you know, even manufacturers. These are perfectly viable programs for, for anybody involved in, in those topics. And then uh, about a month later, I'm going back to Minneapolis in February again. Crazy oh, place to go in February. And uh, there's a second big institute up there. It's called the ICC Upper Great Plains Region 3 Educational Institute. And that runs from February 13th through the 17th. Again, multi-sessions per day over a one-week time period in this case. And on Monday, the the 13th of February, I'm teaching a class on fire resistance rate of construction, along with a brief overview of the various uh, method, or various breaches or openings in rated assemblies and how we protect those openings. The following day on Tuesday, the 14th of February, I'm in the morning teaching a class on the protection of penetrations. And on the afternoon, I'm teaching a class on uh, protecting joints and voids. So that's February. And then uh, in March, I move on to Colorado. Colorado is, it, it's the ICC Colorado Chapter Educational Institute. It's really the first of those big educational institutes for code officials. Uh, it's been going on, I believe it's now 32 years, maybe 
off a year or two. But uh, anyway, that one takes place March 6th through the 10th in Loveland, Colorado, north of Denver. And, uh, you know, once again, it's a multi-track per day session for over a five-day period. And I'm teaching a class on Monday, March 6th on opening protectives and uh, duct and air transfer openings. In other words, fire doors and fire dampers. So, uh, so that's my basic teaching schedule for, for early part of the year. But, you know, beyond that, I guess I'll, I'll uh, bring up the fact that FCIA, along with IFC, does have numerous training sessions, PowerPoints, and, and training modules in general on their, their respective websites. And uh, FCIA recently introduced a new program they call the FCIA Certificate of Achievement Educational Program that uh, consists of hours and hours, I believe it's up to like 30 hours of, of training modules, you know, video, voice overlay, you know, very professionally shot videos that, uh, you know, discuss the various aspects of uh, protection of penetrations and uh, joints and voids. And it's a, a, a great program. Uh, it leads to the issuance of a certificate of achievement, but more importantly, it leads to knowledge of those people taking that uh, that series of lectures. And, and it's a, a tremendous opportunity to bring up your your knowledge base. And uh, yeah, know, we'll, we'll be sure to throw some uh, some links into those uh, those websites as well, FCIA and IFC. Good, good. You know, and but, uh, I guess I'll just recap in, in terms of, you know, FCIA's yeah. philosophy of fire stopping. They, they, Bill McHugh coined the frame, phrase DIM, D-I-I-M, many years mm -hmm. ago, where D represents appropriately designed and tested fire stop systems and appropriately specified systems. I represents the installation through knowledgeable contractors. Uh, specialty contractors and or contractors who are either uh, uh, FM approved or you all qualified. The second I refers to proper inspections by either the municipal inspector or special inspectors who are properly trained and accredited. And the M stands for maintenance. And the maintenance end is something a lot of people don't look at. And, you know, but there's a chapter in the uh, International Fire Code along with a chapter in the uh, the uh, NFPA 1 fire code that talks about maintenance of fire resistance rated assemblies. And I was uh, asked to chair a, a task group, oh, I guess it was about six years ago, to rewrite that chapter of the IFC. And we radically expanded that chapter to talk about the maintenance of fire resistance rated assemblies, so basically floors, walls, beams, columns, along with the various methods of protecting the breaches in those assemblies. So we, we need to always keep that in mind. These like a sprinkler system, like an alarm system. Passive fire protection needs to be maintained, needs to be looked at and reviewed, make sure that it hasn't been breached. So uh, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm awesome. big on that. And, and yeah, your I friend, guess, whoever your friend was that told you you got an F in retirement, they were right. So <laughs> they were, they were <laughs> exactly. You say you got a lot going on. And hey, Rich, I really appreciate the time. It was it was a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. And, and I'd like to thank everybody else out there for listening in. We know there's a lot of podcasts and you've chosen to listen to ours and we really appreciate that. So again, be sure to check out the show notes for some of the links of the things that we were talking about. And if you do enjoy the show, uh, we do appreciate you supporting the podcast. Tell a friend about it, share it, like our social posts, uh, rate us on whatever podcast platform you're, you're listening to it on right now. So um, I'm told that's a good thing. So until next time, this is The Burn. 